everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. This is Amy Brown from Four Things with Amy Brown. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways that Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. We're always asked to, to be vigilant against our neighbors, right? To be vigilant with suspicion. So we said, well, what if we talked about being vigilant with our love, that we were going to engage uh, through love and with love and from a place of love. We're engaging and, you know, really expanding out the work that we do in solidarity, you know, because we really see that all of our struggles are, are truly connected. That was artist and activist Tracy Kato Kiriyama whose projects explore cultures and seek to build bridges between people of different backgrounds. Work that is all the more important at this challenging moment in history. I'm Alain Verveer, and this is Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. We are bringing you 100 of the world's most inspiring and history-making women you need to hear. Based in Los Angeles, Tracy Kato Kiriyama is a writer, theater director, performer, and poet. Tracy's groundbreaking work has been showcased in hundreds of venues across the United States, and it all shares a universal goal, to unite us, to show how we are all connected. Among the most famous of Tracy's projects is the Tuesday Night Project, the longest-running Asian-American mic series in the country, and Vigilant Love, a nonprofit created to combat Islamophobia. Listen and learn why Tracy Kato Kiriyama is one of Seneca's 100 Women to Hear.
I'm here today with Tracy Kato Kiriyama, artist, writer, author, actor, arts educator, and community organizer. Welcome, Tracy. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Thank you so much for having me. You've performed at prestigious venues all over the country, and you're an activist and a community organizer. Is there a common thread in all of your endeavors? Yeah, I think it's a few things. It's definitely curiosity, you know, curiosity about people, um, the desire to connect with people, and to connect with folks on the various arenas that we all navigate. So the political, the personal, the political as personal and vice versa. And to be able to connect through narrative and story and memory sharing. Um, I think that in sharing art, we can, within just a few minutes of a poem or 90 minutes of a play, we can reveal a lot of who we are and, and what we think about and, and the kinds of conversations that we want to have after the sharing. So I think that that's something that unites, uh, something that I do, whether it's in art or as an educator or an organizer. You're so right. Uh, art can cut to the chase in so many ways uh, in making a bigger point that somehow seems difficult otherwise. One of your um, best known activities is the Tuesday Night Project which I know you founded in 1998 uh, in L.A. Why did you create the Tuesday Night Project and the Tuesday Night Cafe? And tell us all about it. Okay. Um, well, we were really inspired by multi-generational, multidisciplinary spaces throughout Los Angeles. And I was also really influenced by my encounters on tour as a young theater artist. And around the country, I witnessed so many communities of color um, at, at multiple spaces, um, really coming together to make things happen on campus or in their local community, especially because each of their individual groups were often small and really extremely marginalized on their own. So there was this uh, a lack of a critical mass for one particular group. Um, so they would really come together with all kinds of different people to make things happen. Um, and then in Los Angeles, there's the World Stage. There was the People's Resource Center in Highland Park. There was self-help graphics in Boyle Heights. And, and, you know, all of these folks were bringing all kinds of art, not one discipline, um, you know, different kinds of generations and people to, to come together. And at the same time, there were multiple friends who were asking, well, where's the Asian American scene in Los Angeles? Where's the Asian American scene? And along with that question in the mid nineties, there was another question of, well, what's also going to happen to little Tokyo. So at that time, little Tokyo and downtown Los Angeles were just not popular places to go on a daily or even weekly basis for most people. And, um, you know, I don't know if you know, before the second world war, there were over 80 Japantowns. And by the mid-90s, there were officially only three J-Towns left. And our little four-and-a-half block space, there was this feeling that it was like a ghost town after dark. And there was a real sense of the threat of disappearance. And, and that's just as part of a long-time history of removal and displacement and enforced disappearance. So all of these things together, there was an urging, I think, amongst um, 
Asian American artists and community activists that I was, you know, hanging out with. A lot of us um, were in a group called Action, and we had hosted a couple events called Art Attack, and those happened on an annual basis. Um, and we would continue to sort of operate and interact with our parallel worlds in, in different communities. And I wanted to do something that could maybe be sustained um, over, you know, a longer period of time and also not on just an annual basis, but something that, you know, we could kind of build and in a small section of Little Tokyo, maybe build something that could be consistent and regular. So I was working with a theater company and we were also working with a band um, and, you know, different poets and artists and organizers. And so we just started to have conversations with people in Little Tokyo. And I had asked the Little Tokyo Service Center about this particular space, the Union Center for the Arts, which is, um, if you're familiar with Little Tokyo, it's, it's this little street called Judge John Iso between First and Temple on what's considered our historic block for Street North in Little Tokyo. And um, at the time, there was really, you know, this was a new art center that was opening up in an uh, abandoned church. And um, there was a courtyard that was just, you know, sort of open. All the spaces inside were taken. There was nothing left. And so I said, well, what, what can we do out here outside um, in this courtyard? And they're like, well, you know, we need young people to come into Little Tokyo. So if you want to try to make something happen here, go for it. We'll let you use the space for free. And so a lot of us, you know, just kind of got together to make this happen. Residents nearby would come and, and, and be a part of it and, you know, help um, set up the sound equipment, put in the chairs and tables. We had to do this every time, um, set up everything, the lights, everything. And, um, you know, we just started as sort of like a little engine that could. And over time, we really developed beyond just an event series into a family and a network a network of folks that really spread now across the world. Um, people try to make it a point to come and hang out or perform or share work uh, when they are in town. And we run April through October um, in our regular season. Um, and then along with that, we've, you know, expanded to really be uh, a support system and a network that our community and our artists can, can lean on in between the events. And we also have other programs that we do workshops. Um, we have a tea and letter writing program that we do online to fill a, a little bit of support for a virtual space. And um, yeah, so it's, it's 23 years later. It's the uh, longest running Asian American public art series in the country. And uh, yeah, we're really, we're really proud of it. And um, I still feel like we're a little engine that could, but we've become, I think, a, a unique entry point into downtown LA and into Little Tokyo. What a remarkable achievement. And I gather it's still an extremely popular place for the community to gather. Are you in a different location now or are you still in the original space? We're in the original space. We started out with maybe 30 people that would show up and half of those would be the people performing on stage. So we would be sort of rotating from the audience onto the stage. Um, and by a few years in, we were, you know, anywhere from like 75 to 150 people that would come out. Um, and then, of course, on our, our season opening and season closing shows, we'd have a lot more. And now typically it's around, you know, 150 to 350 people. 
So everyone is just more packed. And <laughs> we have people watching from the sidewalk and, you know, just looped around the side. And it's very cozy now. Um, but we really love and value being in this in the same intimate space. There's something really great about being in the original space, being outside, being in a place where there's no green room, there's no backstage, everybody is really accessible to each other. And it's become something that we are, you know, we're, we're pretty deliberate about. And I, I would imagine it's very energizing too, very exciting to be there with everybody. It is. There's nothing like, you know, well, this is also why we decided not to try to duplicate it onto an online virtual experience. Cause I think that, you know, people right away were jumping into programming um, online. And we knew that. We knew that there was going to be a lot of that. And I think in particular with the Tuesday Night Cafe, um, it's, it's about a vibe. It's really hard to describe unless you are there. And we do live stream. We've been live streaming for many, many years. Um, so people have tuned in from different parts of the world to watch. But you know, we kind of do that. One one reason why we do that is beyond accessibility. We also are trying to get people to eventually make it out. We had a professor who was uh, watching from Maryland um, uh, while he was writing a dissertation and including us in that dissertation. And so was studying us and uh, had only seen us online for like a year and a half and then finally made it out in person. And there is just something really different once you're there you're really sharing in this experience. You're like literally breathing the same air together. And people are sharing a lot of stuff that's very sensitive and personal and and hard. It's become what we realize is a real healing space. It's not just a space of expression. It's really about connection. It's really about, yeah, being there and being open and being warm um, with each other. And people do need to be with each other. It's one of the things I think uh, in terms of the eagerness uh, to have that again uh, when this pandemic is finally behind us. I know, too, that you work with aerial artist and actor Kennedy Cabasaris, and you have an award-winning two-person ensemble, full-project ensemble. You just seem so creative and innovative, Tracy. Tell us a little bit how this came about. Kennedy and I had worked together in a spoken word slash theater uh, trio called Zero Three. And we had also known each other from other, you know, arts uh, engagements, readings, plays, and things like that. And um, while we were still in Zero Three, um, my focus was mostly on writing and stage performance um, our partner, Edrin, his focus was really on poetry, spoken word. And um, Kennedy uh, decided to start, basically join the circus. And so he was like, hey, hey, guys, do you want to, you know, start taking these uh, circus classes? I'm going to start taking static trapeze. And uh, we we're like, no, <laughs> you go do that. That sounds awesome. <laughs> And, uh, he went and did that. And, uh, you know, he was, he, he really found himself as an artist. I think in our group, he felt like, yeah, yeah, I, I can write sometimes and I can definitely perform, but something about circus, that's where I feel like Kennedy found himself as an artist. And then eventually we stopped touring as zero three and Kennedy and I just kept saying, gosh, we should, we should do something. We should work on something. So it took, it took some years. And then we finally, um, 
you know, really just, we just had so many conversations about, well, well, why circus in theater? Why theater with circus? Because we, we both made this commitment, like we're not going to do a piece that involves circus for the sake of using circus. It has to be where just like any other element that we are putting into the, the performance space, whether that's dance or projection or music or sound, right? That it has to be purposeful. It has to be part of the storytelling um, uh, arena, the storytelling element, um, the storytelling vessel. And so we were thinking about a show that had been on my mind, uh, really a story and an experience that had been on my mind uh, about me and my mother um, in the years after my father had passed. And we decided to embark on this show called Tales of Obsession. And um, we developed that and it was a two-person show and Kennedy played my mom. He stayed on the static trapeze for a straight 45 minutes. And, uh, you know, we sort of kept separation. That was the dynamic between the two characters. That was the sort of uh, use of the static trapeze. It was so high up and we always had this sort of disconnection. And uh, it was really about these two characters, like really trying to, to find a way to come together by the end. Um, so we, we did that and we toured that around, uh, for a few years and around the time that we were coming to another sort of phase in our growth. Um, I was really wanting to, I had been for many years wanting to work with footage from the 1981, um, CWRIC hearings and what those are, it was the Commission on Wartime Relocation and Internment of Civilians. So there was a, uh, a government commission uh, that went out to 10 different sites in the country where there was a critical mass of Japanese Americans who had been incarcerated during World War II. And Los Angeles, uh, out of all the 10 sites, Los Angeles was the only one to... Um, audio record and video record and archive all of those, um, the, the, the 26 hours of, of, of hearings. And so I had, um, been using them a little bit, you know, dabbling with them in, in other storytelling projects, but I had wanted to do something larger and theatrical with it. So, um, you know, I said, Hey, Kennedy, what do you think about, you know, experimenting with this material and working with UK for civil rights and redress and CRR? to develop a show. And so uh, we eventually came upon this idea of looking at the values and the um, cultural and institutionalized aspects of both noise and silence, and the kind of silence that becomes deafening noise when it's held in too long, and the kind of noise that happens when it happens collectively. Um, so we developed a show called Tales of Clamor, and that uh, had its world premiere in 2019. And right now we are in a finalist round for um, a New England Foundation for the Arts uh, creation and touring grant. So we're, we're literally working on that right now to hopefully tour it out uh, further. We'd love to get it into the sites and the regions that held those hearings back in 1981 that ultimately led to redress and reparations in 1988 for Japanese Americans who had been incarcerated. The power of the arts, and you're using it, obviously. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear will be back after this short break. 
We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. You know, just listening to you, I'm... Wondering, what was your growing up like uh, that made you the woman that you are today? Uh, You know, I really have to credit my parents. Uh, They were both public school teachers. They were both really involved in the Japanese American community. They had started uh, the Japanese American Historical Society of Southern California. So as a child, I was surrounded by education and history. And my mom was an English teacher. So you know, around language and, and story. And um, from a young age, they would have me go with them on the pilgrimage to Manzanar. Uh, the pilgrimage to Manzanar always happens on the last Saturday of April. And Manzanar is one of 10 American concentration camps um, that were uh, put onto oftentimes indigenous land and uh, previous re- reservation land um, in different parts of the country. And Manzanar is in California. And that's where both my parents and their families, so Kato side, Kiriyama side, they were all in Manzanar. And um, my father's side, the Kiriyama side, uh, eventually they were also put into Tule Lake um, up north on the California-Oregon border. and. Um, you know, they, they had me help them organize buses when uh, buses of people to go to the pilgrimage um, again from a, a, an early age. And through that, that kind of lens, and then also them taking me with them to meetings or conferences or to see films in Little Tokyo, you know, it eventually led to me meeting people who would become my larger village of activists and artists. Um, people who to this day are my big siblings. They're my big sisters. They're my mentors. They're my teachers. 
And so I really think, you know, it, it did really start with my parents saying to me, like, you know, you have to pay attention when we take you to these things. You are going to learn more about yourself and about this country for that matter outside of your textbooks. And that was really huge for me to hear from two parents who were both teachers, you know? And so a part of me was like, well, do I have to go to school? <laughs> Let's just hang out and do all these fun things. And uh, they're like, no, you have to go to school and, and you're going to go to college. But just know that the learning is not only inside the classroom and you have to talk to people. You have to talk to people who are a different age than you, who are older than you, who've come before you. And um, I think that really shaped me a lot. Well, they're obviously uh, incredible teachers uh, to have had that kind of impact on you as well. Uh, that is a great, great lesson to impart. You mentioned the, the bigger village that you're now a part of, and I know that solidarity uh, is a very big part of your life. Tell me about Vigilant Love, a Muslim and East Asian coalition that you formed after 9-11. What does it do? Yeah, well, Vigilant Love, actually, it was, it was started in 2015. But it was definitely on the shoulders of the work that was already happening between the two communities here in Southern California, the Muslim and Japanese American community, right after 9-11. So right after 9-11, the Japanese-American community, many people, uh, organized and not organized, would make calls to the local chapters of um, care and MPAC and um, just sort of like lend sort of a, a, just a voice of support. And uh, NCRR, that, who I mentioned earlier, Nikkei for Civil Rights and Redress, they continue to be uh, an activist group. Um, they maintained their, their solidarity work, uh, well beyond the redress, um, and reparations movement. And, and NCRR got together, um, and organized with other people in the community to have a vigil in front of the Japanese American National Museum in Little Tokyo. And there were a few hundred people that showed up to mourn the losses, um, on U.S. soil, but make a bigger point that we were going to stand in solidarity with our Muslim folks. Um, and, and that made the news because it was really unusual. At the time, we learned later from our uh, Muslim families that uh, they were not getting any calls of support outside of the ones coming from our community. So I think that that was a, that was a big deal, you know? And so they said, you know, but we don't, we don't know you. We don't know each other. We need to get to know each other. We need to break bread. We need to learn about each other's histories and, and spiritual paths and, and, and differences and connections. And so after 9-11, that, that started a period, um, of, you know, just relationship building, um, that, that a period that never ended. And so coming, you know, many years later, you know, this year will mark 20 years of that work. And uh, at the end of 2015, there were the attacks in Paris that led to a call for a ban on Syrian refugees. And so we knew that we could not stand for that. And we were organizing a vigil 
um, here in Los Angeles to, you know, bring together folks to hear from Syrian refugees and organizers um, and to address this, this impending ban. And while we were organizing for that, the attacks on the San Bernardino Community Center, uh, which is a Muslim community center, um, that, that, uh, the attacks on the San Bernardino Community Center happened. And so, um, we, we kept doing this work to, to build out the vigil into a larger event. And we said, you know, this is really a strong coalition of people. We should maybe think about turning this into an organization. We should keep doing this work. And then we decided upon the name Vigilant Love. And the thinking behind that was, you know, we're always asked to, to be vigilant against our neighbors, right? To be vigilant with suspicion. So we said, well, what if we talked about being vigilant with our love, that we were going to engage uh, through love and with love and from a place of love in the work that we do? So um, so that's how that, that name stuck. And yeah, we've been going ever since and we've expanded. Um, you know, we're, we're engaging in, I think, the third round of a series called Unpacking Anti-Blackness and you know, really expanding out the work that we do in solidarity, you know, because we really see that all of our struggles are, are truly connected. And we also have a legacy of this work. We have a legacy of solidarity work. Um, yeah, the example I mentioned is just one of many. So uh, that's what keeps us going. Well, I think your work in building solidarity, building community, crossing uh, lines of division. I wonder in light of all of that, how you've reacted to the recent horrible attacks on Asian Americans. Yeah. I mean, it's been, um, a, a really impacted time amidst a very impacted reality. And what I mean by that is, um, my usual first reactions are to, uh, check in with folks, see how they're doing. Um, that the particular incident in Atlanta and the massacre there, um, you know, there were so many folks really just rising up to, to come together, to speak out. And so I wanted to figure out how I could show up. So, you know, a lot of it was just about showing up, showing up to these meetings that we were being invited to, um, showing up to calls of support. Um, amplification of the organizations who are, who've been already doing this work to, you know, center the communities that were hit as well as to focus on hate crimes, um, and, and reactions to hate crimes. And it was complicated. And, and, you know, I think ultimately then, um, I, I go to writing and I go to writing because I know it's going to most likely lead to more conversation or at least be a way for me to express, well, here's where I'm at within this conversation. Here's how I will be able to show up. And um, I wrote a little post um, for Instagram. And it was basically around this idea of me just expressing to folks like, you are not disposable. We are not disposable, that we really belong to each other. And we are ultimately beholden to one another. I was leaning into to that notion. And that's so profound. You know, I wonder, listening to you, what makes you optimistic? What keeps you going? You know, I, I consider myself, 
and I don't know if I can say the word pissed on your podcast, <laughs> um, but I consider myself a super pissed optimist. And um, what I mean by that is that I am, I have, a, I have, I carry, I carry heartbreak, I carry anger, I carry bitterness. You know, I do carry that because. But you channel it. But I channel it. Yeah. And also it becomes, um, it just, I think that the, the reason for some of that anger and bitterness, right, is, is, is the knowledge, the understanding of what's going on and why, um, or even trying to understand what's going on and why and, and, and realizing every day how, how much I have, how much more I have to learn, right? How much more I have to grow. How much more information has been hidden from us that we need to find, that we need to excavate. And so that drives me to keep going, to find out more and to keep reaching out and to keep bringing more in. And, um, and, and then in that act, in that process of, of learning, I'm learning with people because I don't think we can learn on our own, right? You, you, you can read a book, fine, but it's when you start having the discussions about that thing you watched or that thing you read that I think we really ultimately have the, the, the fruits of collective engagement. And, um, and, and in that process, then in the organizing work with Vigilant Love or Tuesday Night Project or Nikkei Progressives, you know, like I get to be with all of these amazing people who teach me so much, right? And we contribute to each other's process. And these are amazing folks, just despite all the damage, despite the pain, past and present, which are the same, you know, people are like still finding ways to engage. And then we find in each other joy. And that keeps me so positive because we laugh and we have a good time and we feed each other and we partake and we give, you know, so how can I not be positive? You know, how can I not be like, yeah, I'm excited to wake up, you know? Um, I'm so grateful. I'm just always so grateful. Well, we're grateful to you for spending this time with us. Alas, it's gone so quickly. Uh, I wish we could continue, but I know that you're going to be speaking at the blog, her conference uh, this month with singer-songwriter Milk, and that uh, she has a new song, I Belong, and somehow I feel that this has been a conversation about belonging, uh, despite all of the difficulties that exist in our society, uh, the sense of what you're doing and others like you to bring people together, to cross those dividing lines, to channel outrage in very positive ways. Thank you so much, Tracy. Thank you for this conversation, uh, and thank you for your important work. Tracy Kato Kriyama. Thank you. Thank you so much. What a hopeful way of looking at the world. Here are three things I took from my conversation. First, Tracy Kato Kriyama reminds us how valuable it is to know your community's stories. And you can't do that only through textbooks. Tracy's parents told her, you have to talk to all the people who came before you who are older and can share their hard-won wisdom. Second, Tracy shows that when injustice happens, we can all take action using whatever tools we have, even if it's just our Instagram account. What's important, says Tracy, 
is to remind others, you are not disposable. Finally, we heard once again the importance of women connecting with other women. At Seneca, we were introduced to Tracy by Milk, the singer, songwriter, and activist. In late May, Melk released I Belong, a powerful plea for solidarity that was spurred by recent hate crimes against Asian Americans. Melk's nonprofit, the Somebody's Beloved Fund, partners with numerous organizations, including Kato Kiriyama's Tuesday Night Project. To hear Melk's new song, I Belong, visit somebodysbeloved.com. And tune in next Tuesday to hear about our next featured woman and discover why she's one of Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear is a collaboration between the Seneca Women Podcast Network and iHeartRadio with support from founding partner P&G. Have a great day. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy. And we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now.